French Things, a podcast in which we explore things that we think are French. We go behind the myth and the truth to discover what lies underneath an expression, a cliché, a commonly accepted thing of the culture. Let's find out. Episode 7. God Save the Queen Today is a sad day. Yesterday was a sad day. The following days will be sad days as well. An era has come to an end. The days ahead are those of grief, mourning and sorrow. A kingdom, a nation, nations and a great portion of the world are plunged into bereavement. Yesterday, the well-known and recognisable anthem, God Save the Queen, has been sung and heard for the very last time. This reality makes the feeling that this chapter has come to a close all the more tangible. The most well-known family in the world, perhaps, has lost their most prominent member, the head of clan, if I may say so. Yesterday, a great-grandmother, a grandmother, a mother, went to be with the Lord, reuniting under his mercy with her husband, to whom she had been married more than 73 years. And the world over, everyone who had learned to respect, appreciate and love her has lost something too. Citizens and many others may feel orphaned with the death of such a figure whose silhouette and profile adorns so many household items, a motherly figure somehow, for the past 70 years. Yesterday in Scotland, Queen Elizabeth II has left the castle Second longest monarch to have reigned, she has maintained a sense of duty and service to her country until the very end. We have seen the last pictures when she met with the new PM. She stood, smiling, although she was in pain and frail. Her hands were blue, probably due to the cannulas that must have been affixed on them in previous days to relieve her pain. She carried her duties with grace and wisdom, with an unmatched sense of service, rectitude and loyalty to her commitment when she pledged to honour a family of nations on her 21st birthday. Governed by her sense of duty, her love and fear of God, she has carried her task in a way that commands respect, reverence and deference. It was a sad day because she had been around for so long. It felt she would be there for another good deal of years. She seemed immortal, eternal, a universal figure. Queen Elizabeth sailed through hard times and happinesses with dignity 
She had met with all the prominent leaders and figures for the past 70 years, from Churchill to David Attenborough to Charles de Gaulle to Marilyn and musicians. She has seen the fall of communism and apartheid. The Queen was also the last surviving head of state to have served during the Second World War. Her last Christmas address and her Covid speech conveyed comfort and hope. Her indestructible sense of duty and responsibility melted hearts when she sat alone, grieving and masked, at Westminster Abbey during the funeral of her dear Philip in the middle of a pandemic. Many in position of power or influence could have learned then, and still can now, from her impeccable behaviour and empathy. The God Save the Queen anthem united all listeners in a moment of contemplative recollection and difference. It was all the more poignant as it was the last time we would be hearing it. That thought was and still is heartbreaking because it really is the closing of an important chapter in our shared history and our collective mind. While listening to the anthem, or the grief stricken with tears filling my eyes, I recalled various bits of information about this beautiful song. I pondered how England and France have a lot in common, not just history, and interwoven royal lines and political influence and rulership over various territories. William the Conqueror, of course, brought with him customs, a legal system and vocabulary that still persists to this day. His legacy to England is rich, complex and sometimes difficult, of course. And as the historian says, for better or worse, it made the country that it is today. But that's another story. The French president stated that for the Queen, French was not a mere relic of Normandy ancestry that persisted in so many customs, but an intimate, cherished language too. The Queen of Sixteen Kingdoms loved France, which loved her back. And even if unhappy souls try to always stir the pot of dissension in order to point differences, we should all agree to become acrimoniously resentful. It's always more constructive to find common ground. And it's always more constructive to look for a path of concord instead of reasons to nurture discord. This attitude in life could symbolize the entire motto of the deceased monarch. And I was pondering all this so I decided to do some research on the subject. The result is a little surprising at first, but then not so much if we put things both in context and in perspective. So this online encyclopedia, very much popular, states that in 1745, the Gentleman's Magazine published God Save Our Lord the King, a new song set for two voices describing it as sung at both playhouses, the Theatres Royal at Drury Lane and Covent Garden. So rather by convenience and traditionally perhaps, the first performance was thought to have been in the very year of 1745 when supposedly it was sung in support of King George II after his defeat at the Battle of Prestopans. Sorry, I don't know how to say that name. 
by the army of Charles Edward Stuart, son of James Francis Edward Stuart, the Jacobite claimant to the British throne. But it seems all too convenient that such a fine-tuned and sophisticated anthem should be created in a hurry to comfort a king after a defeat. Besides, this supposed birthing is shrouded with inconsistencies. An anthem does not suddenly appear, and it is not expected to be adopted on the spot after having been sung in theatres. I'd rather think it was the other way round. The song is being presented to a king, receives a blessing by the same monarch, and then is sung in theatres. But it would make for a lesser sensational story, of course. So where did it really come from? Who wrote it? And when? As I said, sources and origins vary, as one can imagine. In essence, this song, which became a unifying anthem, perfectly illustrates the intimate relationships between art, faith, history, and the permeability and influences between European monarchies despite their occasional discords, tensions, or wars. It's commonly accepted that Handel, the German composer of Halle, who would become a British citizen, produced the song in the shape and form that we know now and enjoy. Handel may be familiar to us as the genius composer of sacred music such as the Messiah and the uber-baroque water music and music for the royal fireworks. Born in 1685, Handel became in 1710 Kapellmeister or music director to George, elector of Hanover, in Germany. George would later become King George I of Great Britain and the founder of the House of Hanover. George had become a British citizen in 1705 by Act of Parliament because he was the closest Protestant relative to Queen Anne. And of course we know that since Henry VIII, the King or the Queen has to be Protestant. And this is why George of Hanover in Germany inherited the throne of Great Britain. Of course, when possible, and to avoid tensions or even wars, things like successions have to be prepared in advance. This is why, in 1705, George, the closest relative Protestant, was chosen and made a British citizen, even though he still stayed in Germany. So back to Handel. Upon entering at the service of the elector in 1710, Handel left for London almost immediately, where he stayed nearly a year, and there he, of course, met with Queen Anne. It's possible to ponder if, because he was employed by the elector of Germany, this was also a move for him to, like, I don't know, report a little, if you will, on the Queen and the court for George beforehand. But that's just a fancy idea that I had about this. Handel returned to Germany in 1711. His style and music were extremely popular. His opera, Rinaldo, had been a great success too, as well as the first opera in Italian to be performed in England in this year. Of course, prior to settling to England, Handel, like many artists, had travelled within Europe. While he was in Germany in 1704 or maybe 1705, he had become acquainted to Prince Ferdinando de' Medici, son and heir to the great Duke of Tuscany, who invited Handel to visit Italy, where he would spend more than three years in Florence, 
Rome, Naples, and Venice, soaking in all the beauty and, of course, Italian music. In 1706, Handel had reached Rome, where Marquis, later Prince, Francesco Rispoli employed him as a household musician. And this is where most of Handel's major Italian works were composed. This visit was significant, of course. Baroque music, of course, like any music from other period, has its cliché. But what we can see is that um, the typical of Baroque music can really be traced back to Italy, and particularly Corelli. And Corelli has been the teacher of Handel in Italy. After his stay in England, Handel returned to Hanover, in the summer of 1711, as we said. And he spent a year writing chamber and orchestral music there because there was no opera in Hanover at the time. He was also trying to learn English in 1712. The elector allowed him to make another visit to England. And that was a smart move from Handel to learn English because his protector, his employer, would soon become king of England and if he was to stay at his service it would of course mean that he, Kapellmeister, music director, he would also have to move with the king in England so learning English from an early stage was really a good thing to do. At the same time when he decided to go back to England in 1712, Handel upon arriving on the British soil decided that um, he would drop the letter E in his name between the A and the N to make his name look a little more English and along with that he also found influent patrons. During his stay in 1712 Queen Anne died and the Elector of Hanover became King of Great Britain. George of Hanover became King of Great Britain and Ireland and he would be the founder establishing the line of Hanover. This House of Hanover would produce George II, George III, and of course Queen Victoria and all her descendants. In the summer of 1717, King George requested a concert on the River Thames to be performed on a boat, and Handel, of course, was henceforth commissioned to write royal music, such as water music for wind and strings and later music for the fireworks party. In 1724, however, while en route to Italy to recruit new singers for the operas he was writing, he was at Versailles. Louis XIV had died in 1715, after a so far unsurpassed reign of 72 years. Louis XIV holds the longest reign in history, closely followed by Her Gracious Majesty the Queen. What ties here the court of France to the British anthem is a story rooted in faith, religious planchon, or plain song, in English, and surgery. The year was 1686. Louis XIV, the Sun King, was suffering. He had been enduring the pain of a fistula for months. Surgery was needed, of course. Yet such interventions, and especially at the time, could trigger complications, resulting in the death of the patient. Eventually, though, the King underwent the surgery. It took two months to heal, and despite an infection, the king survived. Everyone in the kingdom of France rejoiced at the happy news. Bells tolled throughout the territory. Religious offices were dedicated to the king and to thanks the Lord. 
one woman took this good result more deeply. She was moved, probably to tears like many others are at the moment, in this historical time. This woman was the Duchesse de Brinon, Duchess of Brinon. She was a friend of the king and his wife, Madame de Maintenon, and she was the headmistress of a boarding school named the Maison Royale de Saint-Louis, or the Royal House of Saint-Louis. The Duchess of Brinon wrote a celebratory hymn as a way of thanking God for the miraculous healing of the king. She dedicated and presented the hymn to the king himself. The Maison Royale de Saint-Louis was a boarding school for girls which is quite unique at the time. This school had been set up in 1684 at Saint-Cyr, which is a commune near Versailles, now named Saint-Cyr-l'École. And this school had been set up by King Louis XIV at the request of his second wife, Françoise d'Aubigné, Marquise de Maintenon, who wanted a school for girls from impoverished noble families. I'd like to add at a side note here regarding the Maison Royale of Saint-Louis in Saint-Cyr. This establishment lost its leading role after the death of Louis and then Madame de Maintenon. But it nevertheless marked an evolution in female education under the Ancien Régime or the French monarchy. And it was really something truly remarkable and unique at the time, a really pioneering move. Its notable students afterwards included Madame de Maintenon's niece, Marie-Marguerite Levallois de Villette, and Napoleon's sister, Eliza Bonaparte, Grand Duchess of Tuscany, among many, many others. So the Duchess de Brinon presented her little cantique in plain chant, or plain song, to the King Louis XIV. And the King loved it so much, he asked Lully, his Italian naturalized French, music master to do something with it. Jean-Baptiste Lully, the superintendent of music at Versailles, found the song so charming, he gave it a proper orchestration and a more sophisticated music and tune. The song begins with a line taken from the Bible, of course, Dieu sauve le roi, God save the king. And more precisely, this is taken directly from the first book of Kings. This charming song, admirably embellished by Lully, was a staple at Versailles and its popularity akin to a nursery rhyme, if you will, meaning that everybody at Versailles and throughout the Kingdom of France knew it and sang it to celebrate the miraculous healing of a much-beloved king. And this song was so, so very much loved that well after the death of the king it was still sung there. And this detail has its importance. Let's have a closer look at the lyrics. In French it says, Grand Dieu sauve le roi, God save our gracious king. Long jour à notre roi, long live our noble king. Vive le roi, God save the king. À lui la victoire, let him be victorious. Bonheur et gloire, happy and glorious. Qu'il est un règne heureux, long to reign over us. Il appuie des cieux, with the help of God. Louis victorieux voit ses ennemis toujours soumis. Let Louis be victorious over his enemy. As we see, very much similarities there. We'll see that this is probably not a coincidence. After he fully recovered, 
The king was so delighted by this little song, he would visit Madame de Brinon at her school, and each time he would visit, the female choir of the school would sing this song for him, and it enjoyed it so much that it became a staple and a tradition for them. Unfortunately, the Sun King died of gangrene in 1715, four days before his 77th birthday, after 72 years on the throne of France. Handel, visiting the court of Louis XV, as we said, in 1724, heard this charming little song. He liked the tune and he found the lyrics inspiring. He noted it in a notebook before continuing his travel to Italy to find new Italian singers and persuade them to come to London to sing for him. Handel's French interlude at the court is probably what saved this pious and faithful celebratory hymn from falling into oblivion. In 1731, Handel was commissioned to write four anthems for the coronation ceremony of King George II. One of these, Zadok the Priest, has been sung at every coronation ceremony since. Sometime between 1731 and 1745, Handel reminiscing of this Thanksgiving song he heard in France had the lyrics translated. He rearranged the music probably, tuned it a bit and turned it into a full-scale hymn to the glory of God and of its chosen monarch. He presented it to George II, King of Great Britain and Ireland, Duke of Brunswick, Lüneburg, from the Electorate of Hanover and Prince-Elector of the Holy Roman Empire. King George II immediately fell in love with this hymn. It was an immediate success, so much so that it became the kingdom national hymn, Don Deal. And so history witnessed two men born two years apart, both formerly German citizens and proud of being now British, establishing the longevity of this newly created anthem for their adopted, beloved English country. An anthem rooted also in a French ode to God and to a king whose mother was Anna of Austria of the House of Habsburg of Spain, an ode later orchestrated by an Italian royal composer. Such a rich tapestry of intricately linked cultures, bloodlines and countries melted into a beautiful hymn. What a glorious image for accepting what connects peoples and nations. What a formidable symbol of unity and hope. That harmony, along with acceptance, is always the better choice. An anthem fit for a British monarch, merging its various influences and origins into an equally rich genealogy. Since 1837, it alternates God Save the Queen and God Save the King, depending on the monarch. Upon the passing of this beloved and respected monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, the anthem has changed, and as of today it is, God save the King. Long live King Charles III. May he be a wise king, and as passionate about his duty as his extraordinary mother was. God bless the King. Let's not be sorrowful. Let's rejoice. And let's take heart. As another queen sang beautifully, life still goes on. The show must go on.
May Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II rest in peace. She'll be remembered as a truly remarkable and amazing monarch. French Things. This episode was written and hosted by Florence Vittel. Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>